Hi, everyone. I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. So we have Ellen Yin on the show today with us. So Ellen is the co-owner of Philadelphia's High Street Hospitality Group, which operates beloved restaurants like High Street Fork and A Kitchen and Bar. Um, she's also a multiple-time James Beard nominee for Restaurateur of the Year, along with many other accolades. So have you ever seen her restaurants in New York, Zach? I feel like she's got some up there, too. Yeah, I honestly I became aware of this not too long before COVID. She opened up. Uh, I guess maybe it was a little before COVID, but she opened up High Street on Hudson. Yeah. And it was the talk of the oh. town. It really, like, for a, for a town that has a lot to talk about in food media, this this really, like, blew up. And that was when I first became aware of her. Even though Philly, in its own right, has one of the best restaurant scenes in the country, um, uh, yeah. it made me aware of, of uh, that's the first time I had heard of her and her projects. And I'm really excited to get to talk to her because she's been quite, uh, she's been quite influential in the New York City food scene. And I'm... I'm pretty sure we're going to be able to learn a lot from her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also all of her James Beard nominations too for for the restaurant tour of the year. I thought to myself, wow, the uh, the accolades just keep coming for this one. So yeah, she, it'll be really exciting. She does. She also. It seems like she's got quite the business pedigree as well. Like she she's mm -hmm. got an MBA, and she there's a lot of this that I think we've talked to so many different people in the industry who come from very different backgrounds, and I'm just really curious to see what her think her thoughts are on the business side of the industry, but also like what her passions are because she's clearly mm -hmm. got both, uh, which is, yeah. you know, really getting lucky when it comes to, uh, to talent, when you can be as yeah. driven and motivated at two things like that as, as you can in the, in the restaurant industry. Trust 20 is a proud sponsor of the So You Want to Run a Restaurant podcast. Training with Trust 20 is not only interactive and entertaining, but it's also mobile friendly. Trust20's ANSI-accredited food handler certificate training is now available for individual and group purchases. Do you or your team need to know about food allergies? Trust20's food allergy certificate training launches July 1st. Visit trust20.co to learn more. Again, that's trust20.co to get the freshest training for you and your team today. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to talk to you about Philadelphia's High Street Hospitality Group and all of the impressive restaurants in that area in New York. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks, Zach. We're so happy to have you on, Ellen. I'm personally very excited. I've known about your restaurants for quite some time. So to be able to finally get to talk to you like this, it's, uh, it's kind of like a professional dream come true. But... <laughs> Typically, <laughs> typically when we uh, when we start this off, uh, we always like to talk about how your involvement in the industry really started. And I saw in a couple of interviews that you've given that you actually have quite a nice pedigree and, and you've kind of been at this for a while and you yeah. kind of worked on your first business plan uh, through college or, or related to your to your studies. So I was just wondering if you could tell us about that and, and how that kind of influenced your entrance into the industry. Well, actually, I worked in restaurants just like so many other young people who get started in the industry in high school, trying to get an after-school job, basically, get a, get out of the house and get away from the family. And I just fell in love with it. Um, you know, um, I was probably a shy kid to begin with. And so the restaurant industry forced me to learn how to socialize with people. 
But um, when I went to college, I always thought, um, you know, that I would want to open a restaurant one day. And so I didn't want to go very far from home. And I ended up coming to Philadelphia to go to school. And, um, you know, I'm from an Asian family and my family really did not want me to go in the restaurant industry. They were hoping that I would become a doctor or a lawyer or something. And I just had this very creative black sheep independent streak in me that said, I'm not going to do that. Um, and, uh, so, um, uh, you know, I, I was, um, a student in the Wharton school undergraduate program and they had a class called entrepreneurial management and you had to put together a business plan. So I partnered with another classmate who happened to also work at the restaurant that uh, that um, we worked at on campus called La Terrasse. It was an upscale French restaurant and had a very progressive Portuguese wine list. This was in the late 80s, so it was very, um, wow. you know, unusual. Um, it's so funny because that was my first exposure to things like chartreuse and falernum and all these things that oh, are yeah. really in vogue right now. Um, mm-hmm. But this restaurant happened to have all this very cool stuff. And, you know, um, I didn't even curve. know it at the time. <laughs> Way yeah. ahead of the curve, right. right. <laughs> at any rate, so... Um, uh, this friend of mine and I put together a business plan for a restaurant in Old City, Philadelphia, and it was going to be a kind of cafe nightclub in the evening and condos, um, you know, for rent above that. And so we put together this business plan and I realized that I was not going to be opening a restaurant any day soon based on how much money was needed. And my parents were not <laughs> going to be supporting in any way um, yeah. that dream. So I had to kind of put that to the side. Yeah. I feel like that's a story we hear a lot on here. People that are like, oh, we're going to start a restaurant. And then they feel they, they see yeah. the price tag attached to it. And they're like, ah, oh, pivot a little bit. Once you bust out the calculator and put pen to paper on the plan, sometimes you're like, okay, this feels a little crazy. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, even 10 years later, I remember my father saying, you know, are you really going to do this? Because... Um, I put, I use that business plan as a platform for my, you know, future business plan, which happens to be for a restaurant in old city. Um, there's no condos involved and it's not a nightclub, but, um, fork was, uh, um, based off my original business plan. And, um, you know, uh, it's scary to sign all those dotted lines. And my dad was just like, why don't you wait until later? But for me, I saw that, a lot of younger people in their late twenties and early thirties were opening restaurants, chefs mm-hmm. and entrepreneurs. And I felt like, well, if, if they can do it, why can't I do it? And yeah. so I was determined to turn this, this shell into a restaurant. <laughs> well, the, yeah, that's amazing. So there was a bit of a gap between when this plan came, you know, through, mm-hmm. through this assignment it was handed mm-hmm. in. And when you actually opened up the space, you, you had a small, a short stint, I should say in the professional world before this happened, what, what were the final steps that this got the ball rolling on this actually coming into to reality, into fruition? Well, to be quite honest, I was just, you know, process of elimination, like many people, you know, trying things out as a young person and realizing I don't like this and I don't like that. And the only thing that was really making me happy was going out to eat and, you know, dreaming about this restaurant. So, um, 
uh, I think that um, I um, what really sealed the deal for me actually was seeing Food and Wine magazine one day and opening it up and being like, you know, these people are the same age as me. If they can do it, why can't I do it? Now, of course, mm-hmm. um, you know, my my professional experience also included um, an MBA in um, healthcare and. Um, I, I probably had more confidence than maybe other people at that age might have to, um, come up with a business plan that, that, you know, um, could work for a a relatively large restaurant. I mean, at that time, 75 seats was medium sized. Um, but like now that's like a fairly large restaurant, you know? Yeah. 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 So, okay. So you open up, what year was it that you opened your first restaurant? 1997. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. So then. And so Portland's still there. Up, am I wrong? Yeah. This is yeah, that's what I thought. Anniversary. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, wow. That is that is a huge milestone. Congratulations. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, so, okay. So you open up that one in 97. How did the opening go? And then when did you say, hey, I want to do more of this and I want to keep going? Uh, well, um, how did it go? Um, you know, we were, we were just thinking that if we could survive one year, that would be great. That means that we have a better chance of surviving five years. We were really aware of the, the risk and the potential closure of the restaurant. And, um, my business partner and I partnered with another woman who was our chef. And, um, you know, at first we, 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 when she did her tasting for us, we weren't completely blown away. But um, when we did the friends and family, she completely killed it. And um, oh. we were like, wow, um, we picked the right person. <laughs> she she did an unbelievable job. Her name was Anne-Marie Lasher. And she, um, she really helped us launch, um, you know, and we were at the right in the right place at the right time, to be quite honest. Um, there wasn't a lot of openings at that time, you know, um, Philadelphia was just kind of recouping from the late eighties recession and things were opening up and people were wanting to do something, but there was no restaurant between city hall and the Delaware river. Mm -hmm. So it was a really exciting time period. And so we opened and, um, you know, it was, um, of course, I probably remember it more fondly than it was. I know it was very hard. I do remember I was always calling people up and saying, come on in, come in, you know, we're open. Yeah. Um, but we were reviewed very quickly after we opened. You know, there wasn't that courtesy of three months period of time, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, Learning you know, curve. You know, something like the, um, you know, like uh, um, the Philadelphia Weekly came in probably, we opened October 15th, they probably came in November, so like a month after we opened. And then momentum started building and, you know, by, I would say, January, we were we were pretty full on the weekends and, and weekdays. But we were the only people on that side of town. So if you came to us, we served dinner from um, 5 30 until 11 30 at night you were mm-hmm. there you know what i mean like right. you know there was no place else to go it pays right. to be a destination you know that's that's a it's a bold decision to make but when it pays off it pays off right <laughs> well, yeah you have dinner and then you sit at the bar and you have cocktails until they kick you out i mean that's yeah. the way it goes <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> um okay so, oh go ahead matt no no you, you take this one claudia go for it 
So I was just thinking, so you're talking about building this and you said, you know, you got this far, you were a destination. When did the other one start? Or when did you decide, all right, I want to start building a second one or I want to start expanding this? Because it sounds like that location did really, really well mm-hmm. and still is. Yeah, it was, it, it did really well. And, um, you know, as soon as you start to become successful and people start to notice you, of course, people start to approach you and ask you if you're interested in doing other things. But, you know, at that time, I don't even think that I could imagine doing another project because I, I never really managed a restaurant before to be, to be completely frank. I worked as a server, I worked as a bartender and I really needed the support of um, my team at the time because I really didn't know how to manage anything. And I was a consultant Mm -hmm. and consultants don't, you know, they're like, what do, what do they say? If you if you can't um, manage, then teach. And if you can't teach, then consult. I don't know. It's <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I don't know. But sounds um, right. You know, I never managed anything. So I, even though I wanted to open another thing and I wanted to grow, I wasn't at that stage yet. And also, um, you know, although Anne-Marie set us up for incredible success, three years into it became obvious that we were wanting different things in life. And I mm-hmm. wanted to continue growing and she really wanted to have, um, you know, a small place. And this small place was already doing 350 covers on a Saturday, you know what I mean? In a 75 seat wow. restaurant you know, brunch and dinner. And, you know, so it was very crazy. And, um, so we decided that she was going to leave. So I had to find a new chef partner and that wasn't that easy at the time. I mean, this was not, um, you know, the, the chef momentum had just started and, um, finding a chef was not that easy. So, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't in the right spot until like 2004 and then the space next to us became available. And so we actually, um, expanded next door. We had another opportunity in Rittenhouse Square that we thought we were going to take, but didn't work out. So, you know, I mean, sometimes, um, when you want something too much, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a huge success and it sometimes hampers your ability to see clearly and negotiate. But, um, and that particular situation, it was, um, decided for us. So we stuck with our next door and Mm -hmm. next door started out as a prepared foods and private dining room for fork that we called fork, et cetera. And we started our own bakery there. So that was the predecessor to, um, high street on market. So it was just the two until 2013. So 15 years later, you know, and I was always looking and talking to people, but I never was ever in the right spot. I would either get an offer and be ready to do something. And then that chef would leave and I would be back to square one again until Uh I met Eli Culp. Um, that was 2013 um, or 12 maybe. And, um, uh, you know, he was in New York at the major food group and, um, you know, really wanted to grow. And when he came down and saw fork, et cetera, he thought this is a perfect opportunity to rebrand this into something that's chef driven. And I said, well, that's fine, but you know, daytime needs to be still breakfast and lunch. So, you know, the whole idea of what he was doing at Teresi with Parm in the daytime and Teresi at nighttime really resonated with that space. And then before we even opened High Street, the folks from A Kitchen approached us and said, hey, um, how would you feel about 
operating a kitchen for us. And um, I loved a kitchen. I, that was one of the first places I took Eli. They have an incredible wine program, which is something that we wanted to add to our, you know, I wanted to add to our port portfolio. And then they also had a bar, which was a cocktail driven bar. So it was really a great synergy. And we were not on that side of town. And um, that was, that would have made a perfect combo. So, so we open High Street, and the minute after we opened High Street in 2013, we then start opening a kitchen or rebranding a kitchen into a grill-focused restaurant. And um, yeah. so High Street, you know, was very lucky. Somehow it got onto Bon Appetit's, um, you know, top 10 list, and our business tripled because of it. Um, Love that I don't food think, media bump. <laughs> we were not prepared for it, so it just became this, <laughs> you know, completely chaotic experience. There's also um, that. There's but, um, you know, that was kind of what launched our growth pattern because um, our numbers were crazy for a 35-seat restaurant. And um, the bread program started growing. We were with Alex Bois at the time, who then became Lost Bread. And, um, and then... Um, I think that um, uh, we thought to ourselves, okay, we have all this momentum right now. We've gotten great reviews. Maybe now is the time to start thinking about how we're going to grow. And we had just formed the hospitality group um, so that we could manage a kitchen. And so um, uh, we started thinking about raising money to open a restaurant in New York. And I think that was Eli's dream was to open a restaurant in New York city. And, um, you know, we, it was kind of crazy because we went to start raising money and we raised the money within like, you know, I want to say the first 10 people that we asked all said yes. Wow, um, that's a rarity. We yeah. feel like in the startup world, especially you hear, yeah. I had to go to 25 investors before I got one. Yes. That's, that's very impressive. Yeah. Um, well, these were all people that I had relationships with and who wanted to see me succeed. I mean, I had already yeah. been in business for 15 years up until that point. Yeah, you've proven yourself, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, um, and it was actually the first time I ever raised money outside of, uh, you know, friends and family and dad. Right. So my first, my first, you know, foray was really borrowing money and this was the first time that I ever really had investors and, um, you know, that was, um, a learning experience, you know, <laughs> that's a tough, I think for the restaurant industry in general, for some like you come from a business education background and, and like a business focus background. It's weird. Cause I, for, I remember the first time I went around trying to figure out how I was going to raise money to open my business. I was terrified of the prospect of asking people for money and like fundraising in my mid twenties. I'm like, I just had all these ideas in my head. Like I was thinking more startup world. Cause I'd kind of come from that. So it's really interesting and refreshing to see that even, you know, like it's amazing, you know, after 15 years, you've obviously proven yourself. You're going to, you're going to get people to show up and give you the cash, but well, it's all the same know, learning process. I have to be honest with you. If I, if I had to do it all over again, I probably want to, um, 
have a smaller amount of, of money from my investors and a bigger amount of debt because for me, I feel very indebted to my investors. You know, I, I want to make sure that they're paid back and I yeah. don't want to lose their money. And um, for the bank, it's just a faceless person where if I need longer time or whatever, I mean, like, they'll work with you. You know what I mean? It's much easier to tell the bank you to go to hell. I guess it's more transactional. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. more transactional. Like, if you say to them, hey, listen, I'm going through a really tough period of time, they're going to be like, okay, well, what do you need? Let me go get approval from my boss. You know, and, right. and you might never meet their boss. I'm not saying that every bank is that lenient, but um, but again, I mean, these were all relationships that I've, you know, built over time. Right. No, I feel you on that. That's also one of those things that that anxiety keeps me up at night of like, a, oh, I don't want to let these people down. That That is like the hardest part. Right. But right. I guess it shows you that you're not being capricious with, with other people's money. But, you know, um, I mean, people think that I'm 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 successful, but I've had tons of failures. I mean, when I opened um, the extension next door. Um, you know, I, I was trying to do it non-union and it ended up being a union job and I had to expand the budget of it by like half a million dollars and I had to borrow the money to do it. And I had to like, you know, um, I had to like face the fact that I wasn't going to be able to pay it back based on the terms that I had originally negotiated. And I had to go to all the people that I had borrowed money from and talk to them and, um, you know, try to figure out how to fix it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, so, I mean, it's the, you have, that's an amazing Genesis story. It, like, I feel like you could, you could learn a lot based on that. I'm going to talk to you about writing a textbook at some point. Um, <laughs> it'll be more interesting than a textbook, but that's, that's a, that's a good <laughs> yeah, story. Sure. But, um, I also want to talk with you a little bit about restaurant culture. Uh, and it's really apparent because I've read a lot of your interviews, um, that it's something you put a lot of stock into and something mm -hmm. you take very seriously. Um, and I just kind of want to get the ball rolling and hear, like, kind of just hear your thoughts on, on, in your perspective on, as someone who runs a restaurant group, um, what it's like to maintain a healthy culture and to, to foster the right kinds of sentiment, uh, in a, in a workplace at, like such as a restaurant, because, uh, it's something you've, you've brought up in a bunch of the stuff I've read and it's something I'm passionate about and I'm something I'm sure our listeners are too. So. Well, I, I think that, um, I'm probably, um, uh, you know, my experience prior to the restaurant working in nonprofit, um, really made me think about what motivates people to want to be part of an organization. So like I was, I was a fundraiser fun, fundraiser for the American heart association. And one thing people said to me is you have to figure out what motivates people to help you because it's not going to be money. It's, it's something else that makes you get them to either ask their friends for money or um, participate in a fundraiser or help organize a special event or a golf tournament, whatever it is, they're not getting paid for it. So you have to figure out what it is that motivates them. And the one thing that I always felt, um, you know, having worked in restaurants and also, um, you know, having a lot of friends in the restaurant industry, I always felt that a lot of front of house people never felt that they had a voice. And so I worked really hard from the very beginning, especially since I had probably no business running a restaurant, that um, that the way that our procedures were developed and the way things were formed had to be informed by people who were involved with doing it on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that kind of started, you know, my philosophy about how to, um, you know, keep people together. And... Um, and also keeping in mind that no one's going to be with you forever. Everybody has a goal that they want to 
they, a dream that they want to follow. And, um, you know, although, um, I have a lot of people who come back to me and their dream is to open their own restaurant. My job is to help them with the journey along the way to make them learn and be better than how they were when they entered the place, no matter what position you are. If you're a high school student and you come in and you're, you know, student in the school district of Philadelphia, I want you to be able to go to wherever your dream is to go, whether that's community college or Ivy league school. My job is to help you whatever, in whatever way this restaurant, this place, this community can help you grow um, to get there. And so that's hard because I develop a lot of people and then they move on to other places. Um, uh, not only, um, restaurants, but they move on to other jobs and whatnot. Um, but that's just the reality of what I've accepted as part of my, my, my journey, you know? And so, um, that's what comes with being a mentor too, right? Like it's, it's clear because not everyone offers that sort of thing, but that, kind of transaction is is beneficial in its own right because i agree with you like the idea that people will show up for a paycheck but they're gonna like they're gonna invest if you give them something like something like a mentorship like you're providing so do you do that i mean it feels like that's that really fosters positivity it's not the the norm for every uh or every owner every group manager manager to to kind of and make that kind of serious investment in their staff well, I care about everybody and, you know, I'm not going to say my place is perfect because there are plenty of times when it's negative and toxic and, you know, um, that like um, anywhere, you know, we need, we all need a break from each other. And that's when I go on vacation so that everybody can get a rest from me. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm a human just like everybody else. I mean, we all have to accept that yeah. we're human beings and we make mistakes and we say things that we don't necessarily mean but it's how you recover from it, you know? And, yeah, and there are people who come through my doors and they don't realize that I'm trying to help them. And, um, they think that I'm trying to, you know, but looking back after, you know, several years, they might come back to me and say, you know, I didn't realize what was going on or whatever. So, yeah. you know, you try the best that you can. Um, but I've always felt that like having a professional environment min- minimizes, um, you know, the types of situations that, um, the restaurant industry can be known for. And so the more professional you make it, the more, um, you don't have, um, you know, problems of abuse and, um, you know, whether that be verbal drug, alcohol, whatever it may be. Um, and, um, you know, so I always started out from 1998 forward, we had, um, health benefits, we had, um, 401k, um, you know, we wow, had that's, paid a lot for that's a lot 19, yeah. for the 1990s. I feel like that conversation has only really been put super in the forefront during the pandemic. So yeah. that's impressive. Um, yeah, I mean, insurance then was only $200 a month. Now it's $500 a month. So we're trying to figure out how to be creative about that because so many young people don't value that anymore. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at models where we can have primary care and mental health benefits on a less expensive basis, Mm -hmm. catastrophic care. Um, and, um, you know, just trying to figure out how can we make it a place where they feel valued, where the team feels like, um, the group cares about them because yeah. I can't be everywhere at, every, at, at, you know, every point. So it's not just right. me. It has to be the management team as well. 
Sure. You're like fostering that environment throughout the, your entire space, not just within you, but every, at all levels. Um, so I guess, I mean, I think that's amazing. And I know that in addition to doing, you know, stuff for your team, I also have read a lot that you've been tremendously involved with your community. Um, I'd love to talk about, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that and also the Wonton Project. Um, which I believe you launched during the pandemic. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I've always felt that if you really want to um, build a long-term business, that you have to be part of the community, that people have to, like, connect with you in some way. And so, you know, early on, I was involved with the Old City District and the Art and Theater Company that's around the corner from us because, you know, I mean, what a great organization to be part of. They're so talented, and they bring us first seating business because they're, you know, two blocks away from us. Um then I started being involved with the waterfront development, which is, you know, really exciting for me to see parks being developed and just our side of town turning into um, a destination. So, I mean, besides a historic um, component and the art galleries, um, you know, it kind of sometimes goes up and down, you know, you never know what it's going to be like. So I've always been committed to the community and to, um, you know, raising money. And that comes probably from my nonprofit background. People ask me to donate gift certificates and I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. Cause I know how hard it is to like get that. Um, right. I've done the work, you know, <laughs> so, um, and also, you know, I think it puts us in a positive light as, as, um, being community minded and that people hopefully recognize that, um, our generosity will come back as, you know, future business. But, um, during the pandemic, of course, um, you know, everybody was reeling and didn't know what to do. And the only thing I could think of doing, I couldn't dream of not working. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, if we close, what am I going to do? I mean, like, it wasn't like, uh, you know, um, not, not the money so much, but like, I can't stay home. Exactly. My mind will explode. Ellen, I had the same thoughts when my office told me guys, we're going to have to work from home for probably around two (laughs) weeks. And I thought to myself, I'm in partnerships. My whole life is external engagement and relationships. Right. What am I going to do with myself? I and I know. got real comfortable having a relationship with myself. So we'll just put that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was the strangest feeling. So, um, yeah. you know, the first thing that happened was that um, we were able to raise money to help support frontline worker meals. And so we raised like, a, we ended up raising like 150000 to wow. um, uh, to feed frontline workers and um, that's and a lot, yeah. That helps sustain us. But in retrospect, I feel like I didn't do enough. Like I felt like that money I could have maybe I should have developed a program or something like that instead of mm. using it to to make food. But like at the same yeah. time, a lot of the people at the university hospital there was nothing to eat. You know, right. there was no nothing open. Yeah, so, I was going to say, put it in the, the context of the situation, though. I feel like that had to have been immensely helpful to those people. Yeah. You know, I know it's it's like hindsight, but it was also like, it was a crazy time. So Yeah, it I, was I, a crazy yeah. time. So, um, and, you know, we, we, we closed for one day to kind of reset ourselves and turn ourselves into a takeout restaurant, which, you know, is foreign for a lot of restaurants that are sit down. But we turned Fork at Seven, uh, we turned High Street into um, all takeout and delivery, got online ordering immediately and, you know, just started doing that. Um, 
we started working with Everyone Eats um, Philadelphia. I mean, I think I saw that there was a need and because I was fortunate enough to still be open and PPP was starting to come along, I was just like, we have to like support the neighborhoods that have been decimated by the violence from, you know, um, from last, from um, summer of 2020. And then, um, you know, so, so doing those kind of things has always been part of my blood and I love doing it. And, um, you know, it, it really connects you to new people and, and whatnot. So Wonton Project came out because after we did the frontline worker meals, I'm thinking to myself, well, who knows when Fork is ever going to get back to what it was before. So we might as well think of doing something. And I had always been thinking to myself, you know, um, and this is, this is a very deep conversation about my personal identity as a, um, Asian American, you know, person born in the United States to Asian immigrants. I grew up always, you know, this was the seventies, to belong, you had to like assimilate. And so I never really, I, that was part of myself that I was always kind of like, you know, one part of myself, but never really integrated into my restaurant self. Like I never wake mm. up in the morning saying, Oh, I'm Asian American. Even though I look in the mirror and I say to myself, of course I'm Asian, you know what I mean? But yeah. I, I never really connected that with my culinary hospitality side. So then when the March, you know, Asian hate started coming around, um, we had already been toying around with the idea of doing something in Fork that was um, Asian driven. And the only thing that I really feel confident making, although my mother was an amazing cook and I, I was a beneficiary of so many amazing meals, I know how to make dumplings and wontons and that's about it that I can confidently say that like I can kill it, you know? Yeah. So, so I said, well, what happens if we just, uh, everybody's just doing these, you know, these like takeout type things where it's just one thing. What if we just do wontons? Exactly. And so, um, perfect food for it, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So we were thinking, you know, wonton project, we don't know how long it's going to last and you know, it could be fun. And, um, the timing of it was, um, you know, we had actually set it up before um, March of 2021, I think that was, right, 2021. And so then um, it just became completely natural to start it in April um, and May during AAPI month. And it ended up raising like, you know, $12,000 and we're continuing to fund um, anti-Asian hate and discrimination um, nonprofits like... um, uh, Asian Americans United in Philadelphia. We donated some to Advancing Justice, um, Heart of Dinner, um, CMAC, which is a um, uh, immigrant um, uh, uh, aid organization in Philadelphia that also addresses food insecurity. No, the, I mean that, uh, we were just saying that that was that's very impressive to be able to put something together. I know that was like everyone's intention during the early days of COVID was to step in and get helpful. But uh, that sounds like you really managed to pull off a lot and clearly your background helps in that. Uh, It was kind of um, funny because I'm not a chef. (laughs) So I was really nervous about cooking it for my team. And, um, you know, they were, their response was really positive. So um, that was, that was great. (laughs) Um, Another feather you can put in your cap. That's like, that's a huge thing to be able to pull off in front of staff. Well, it was pretty funny. And then, um, you know, the orders started coming in and some days I would come to work and there would be like 20 pre-orders for wontons and we would be busy. And I was just like, Oh, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll do it. You 
know. So, so were you actually Amazing. fulfilling the orders? Yeah. yeah. Oh I'm my god! Incredible. Gosh. That's so cool. <laughs> so you really are like you're, you've got all the restaurant experience, front of house, back of house, operations, yeah. everything. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. So I guess so, to kind of bridge to the next topic, I was going to ask, given everything that we've ex- sorry that you've experienced from 1997 up through COVID. What has changed other than like the obvious COVID stuff and then what COVID has done to your businesses? Like how has it changed your involvement other than making wontons yourself? How has it changed your involvement and, and just big picture? Like what, how, how does everything feel to you now? How has it changed since day one? Well, it kind of feels like back to day one, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> it, uh, you know, I mean, I haven't had that much time to think about, about my organization, um, until March, 2020. And, you know, since we weren't really that busy, I had a lot more space in my brain, although it was being overwhelmed by worry and stress of, you know, what's going to happen. But, um, uh, I feel very hopeful about the future. I feel like a lot of things that, um, I've thought about in the past about, um, pay equal pay and things like that. Women having, um, you know, a greater voice in the industry, um, that, um, I'm in a, a different position in my life too. I mean, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not doing everything myself every single day like I used to. And especially as we've been ramping up, um, I'm not the person doing everything. I mean, it used to be like, if we started a new project, I would be there doing, you know, the operations and whatnot. Now I am, I am at Fork most of the time because my office is here, but we had to relocate High Street. So, I mean, a number of things changed about our operation. So right now I feel very hopeful. I feel like there's opportunity. I feel like when things get the worst that they can possibly be, how could they not do anything but go up? So I feel confident that people um, are taking this opportunity to reset themselves and to think more about how could we do things better. Um, that's why people are adding insurance to thinking about mental health, um, you know, pay time off. I mean, all these things that, you know, probably should have been part of our conversation. But when you think about the growth of the restaurant industry over, you know, even before us, it was, um, it was a lot of mom and pop shops, cash basis business, you know, there were a lot of things that weren't that, that structured about it. And now we're just moving forward in that, in that progression. I think it was also like, it was like, it was something that we should have, like should have happened sooner, but it was like this forced a lot of these conversations probably for the better, to be quite honest. Um, and unfortunately I feel like humans are the species where unless like we're, we're pushed to the edge, we won't, we won't take the leap. So, you know, yeah, the recalibration was certainly a long time coming, but you're yeah, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. The fact that we it took a global pandemic for some of right. these major flaws in our industry to come to to come forefront of the conversation uh, is pretty telling. But it's it's great that you know people are willing to have it, and, and managers like yourself are are leading the conversation and, and making decisions that you know seem to be bringing the industry up as a whole. Yeah. So, absolutely. Well, this was great, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, But before you go, we have a little round this season called the tasting menu where we ask you three quick questions. And the first thing that comes to mind is the one you answer with. 
Sound good? Okay. All right. All right. Sounds great. First question is, what's one food that you cannot live without? Bread. Bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Sandwiches, toast, yeah, breakfast, everything. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Every meal can have that. Even if it's just yeah. plain. I, I love bread. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's in the same Absolutely. Uh, yep. What is your favorite city to eat in, Philadelphia excluded? Hmm. Um, I'm going to say um, my favorite eat- city to eat in, San Francisco. Ah, lots oh, of well, good stuff there. Well, hmm. Sorry, Rome. Rome. <laughs> oh, Rome is, oh, yeah, it's yeah. hard to beat Rome. <laughs> Can't beat that. That's yeah. good. I like it. That's that, they got a lot there. Also, lots of bread in Rome, so you'll have that yeah, and pasta. Exactly. I should have had a vowel at the end of my name. I mean, you know, I, I I'm um, I love yeah. Italian cuisine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm the same, and yeah, final I'm the same question: way. Do you have any memorable celebrity encounters that you've had at any of your restaurants? Hmm. Memorable celebrity encounters. Mm-hmm. Well, we've certainly had plenty of celebrities in New York and um, Philadelphia, but um, I, I, I mean, none that I can really think of except for, I mean, this is not really that, ex- well, it's not really not that exciting except for when you go to a table and you suddenly realize that who you're sitting that next person to sitting next to is a celebrity yeah. um, and you didn't realize it at first, um, but I am culturally pop culture dumb um so um i don't know anybody uh so any celebrity that comes into my place and they don't want to be known they're probably safe (laughs) they're at the right place (laughs) that's funny we had who was on the show that said that they were they looked over and they didn't realize scarlett johansson was sitting right next to them who was it some God, I, gosh, I don't remember now. That? But anyway, we've had we. That's it's a fun question because we never know what yeah. we're gonna get in some story. Like Chef Jupe, Brian Jupiter talked about hosting something with with um, with P Diddy, and I thought that that was a great story. So, anyway, well, Ellen, yeah. thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I am so looking forward to seeing all the new things that you're that you're doing, and um, we're excited to see your continued success. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate it. And uh, look forward to meeting you you in person. Yes, hopefully. Having a hard time keeping up with all of the restaurant industry news? Check out the Back of House News podcast that drops every Thursday. The Back of House News podcast cuts through the noise and covers all of the latest restaurant and food service industry headlines that you need to know now. Go to backofhouse.io or listen wherever you get your podcasts. That's Back of House News Podcast and backofhouse.io. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, Eat.News. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms. 